Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by... Jacqueline Brown, author of The Light Series, a best-selling Catholic fiction series that will leave you asking, who would I become if the world fell away? Enter code MYSTERIOUSWORLD at Jacqueline-Brown.com for 10% off. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at RosaryArmy.com. Previously on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. received this afternoon a message from the Japanese government in reply to the message forwarded to that government by the Secretary of State on August 11th. I deem this reply a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, which specifies the unconditional surrender of Japan. Arrangements are now being made for the formal signing of the surrender terms at the earliest possible moment. General Douglas MacArthur has been appointed the Supreme Allied Commander to receive the Japanese surrender. You're listening to episode 113 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the desperate Japanese coup that almost changed the ending of World War II. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In August of 1945, Americans were relieved to hear that the Japanese Empire had finally surrendered and World War II would soon be over. General Douglas MacArthur was on hand to receive the Japanese surrender aboard the battleship USS Missouri, but the American forces didn't know about a dramatic and desperate series of events in Japan. The Japanese military was deeply divided, and many were shocked and alarmed at the prospect of a humiliating surrender. Even though the emperor, who was regarded as a god on earth, had authorized the surrender, many could not accept it. Some chose to take matters into their own hands and stage a military coup against the emperor on August 14th, 1945. 75 years ago tonight, 
as this episode releases. So what happened? Who were the key players? And how close did their coup come to succeeding? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what do we need to tell people before we begin? Well, I think people will really enjoy this mystery. It's a story I've been wanting to tell for a long time. It's about an event known as the Cujo Incident, which occurred at the end of World War II in 1945. I first heard about this coup years ago in a documentary, but it was initially hard to find good information about it. Most of the stuff you'll find in English tells about the end of the war from the Allied perspective, and it wasn't easy, at least at first, to get English language material about what was going on in secret in Japan. Histories will sometimes mention it, but they'll often just race over it, and I can't help wondering if, in part, it's to spare the, the current Japanese government from some embarrassment. Eventually, though, I found the information I needed, and I still had to wait, though, till August now to tell the story. So I'm really glad to finally be able to share it with you. As people heard in our opening segment, one of the key things leading to the surrender of Japan was the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and a few days later on Nagasaki. The story of the atomic bomb and the moral questions surrounding its use will fill an episode on their own. So we'll be devoting a future episode to the Manhattan Project that led to the development of the of the bomb, as well as the moral issues connected with it. In this episode, we're going to be focusing on the story of the military coup that happened after the bomb was dropped. So we'll be looking at the end of the war in terms of events that occurred primarily in Japan and that the Allied forces were not even aware of at the time. Even today, many in the West don't know about them, so it's kind of a look at the hidden side of World War II history. Also, because this mystery has already been solved, we won't be doing the usual faith and reason sections to analyze it. Instead, we'll tell the story in a straightforward way and then examine the morality of some of the elements in the story from the faith perspective. First, though, we need to set up the background so we can understand what happened and why it happened. Okay, so what do we need to know first? The most fundamental thing concerns how Japan was being governed at the time. The overall leader, of course, was the emperor. And in the World War II era, and for many years afterwards, it was the emperor Hirohito. Hirohito was born in 1901, and he lived until 1989, when he passed away at the age of 87. As the eldest son of the previous emperor, he was groomed for the office he eventually assumed, but he got an earlier start than was expected as emperor. This was because his own father, Yoshihito, wasn't really up to the job. Uh, Yoshihito was a fascinating and very sympathetic character. Interestingly, you know, so you know how in the Bible, at one point, Sarah gives her concubine Hagar to Abraham so that he can have what they're hoping is going to be the son of promise. And so Sarah's kind of trying to have a surrogate son. Well, something like that, not exactly that, but something kind of close to that was happening in the royal family when Emperor Yoshihito was born. His biological mother was a concubine, so not the empress, but a concubine. And despite that, according to the custom of the time, the empress was regarded as his legal mother. 
And so he was the child of one woman. He had one birth mother, but he was legally the child of another woman. He also had two older siblings, both of whom died in infancy. And Yoshihito himself was quite infirm as a child. When he was a baby, he had contracted cerebral meningitis, which is an infectious neurological disease that causes the sudden inflammation of the protective membranes around the brain and spinal cord. Among the possible consequences of meningitis for children who catch it young are epilepsy, diminished intelligence, and learning and behavior problems. It's also been thought that he may have cont contracted lead poisoning because of the lead-based cosmetics that his wet nurse wore. So, you know, she was wearing these lead-based cosmetics, it got into the milk, and maybe he also had lead poisoning. Either way, he probably had suffered neurological damage, and Yoshihito was a frail boy who had frequent illnesses and also had trouble learning in school. He couldn't master the more intellectual subjects, and they had to pull him out of middle school before he was done and just start giving him private tutoring. The only subject he was really good at was language, and so he boned up on French and Chinese. He also was a fan of Western culture, but it really annoyed his father, the Emperor Meiji, when his son expressed enthusiasm for Western things and was like dropping French words all the time in his <laughs> Japanese conversation. That didn't stop Yoshihito, though, from becoming emperor, and he assumed the office in 1912 when his own son, Hirohito, was 11. Very quickly, though, Yoshihito's reign went sideways as the emperor just could not carry out his public duties. A famous incident occurred in 1913 when he was present to make a speech to open the Imperial Diet of Japan. That's Japan's ruling body, the Diet. On this occasion, he severely broke with what Japanese social protocol required by rolling up his speech and looking through it at the members of the Diet like he was looking through a spyglass. And this was considered incredibly inappropriate behavior for the emperor. It's like, what's he doing up there peeking at us like through a spyglass? That's so undignified. Some tried to explain this by saying he was checking to see if the speech would roll up properly, since his neurological problems caused him to have difficulty with manual dexterity. So the idea was maybe he's just checking out, can he roll it up effectively? But others thought the emperor was just nuts. And some historians have thought that for much of his reign, Yoshihito was basically insane. In any event, he couldn't govern and couldn't keep up with his public duties. And so they kept the emperor progressively more out of sight. So then how did they arrange for Emperor Yoshihito's duties to be fulfilled? That's what led to his son, Hirohito, being given an early start in public life. In 1921, Hirohito became the sesho, or regent, who governs in the place of a monarch that's not capable of doing so. And at the time, Hirohito was only 20 years old. He also was a colorful young man with an interesting history. To understand part of it, you need to remember that in Japan, certainly at the time, the emperor was regarded as a god on earth. Okay, here in the West, we associate the term god with, you know, the infinite creator god of the Bible. But is that how Japanese people thought of the emperor the same way? 
No. First of all, we should remember that we're not speaking about all Japanese people. Of course, as we discussed in episode 99 on Our Lady of Akita, there are Christians in Japan who obviously don't regard the emperor as a deity. And there are members of other religions, too. However, most Japanese people were members of the state religion, which is known as Shinto. And it is traditional for Shintoists to regard the emperor as a god or kami to use the Japanese word for the concept. But the term doesn't mean what it would in a Christian context. Kami can be translated either as gods or just spirits, and it describes a wide variety of spirits that vary greatly in how powerful they are. Some are supposed to be disembodied human souls, and others are superhuman, but, you know, still relatively limited. So the term doesn't automatically mean the infinite creator god that we think of in a Christian context. In fact, the term uh, kami is similar in meaning to the Hebrew term Elohim, which covers everything from the creator and God of Israel to the gods of other nations to superhuman spirits like angels and demons, all the way down to the spirits of departed human beings. So any kind of spirit could be described in Hebrew as Elohim, and any kind of spirit in Japanese could be described as a kami. Nevertheless, the emperor was held to be a sacred person, and he was at the center of the Japanese religion of Shinto. In fact, he was held to be a descendant, like all the members of the imperial family, of Amaterasu, the Japanese sun goddess, as well as Susanu, the storm god. So early in Japanese history, the gods had to mate with human beings so that the emperor Jimu, the first Japanese emperor, could take the throne in the 600s BC. So with that as background, we can appreciate what historian William Craig writes in his book, The Fall of Japan. Born in 1901, Hirohito had been brought up in a traditional pattern. His world was ruled by advisors who saw to it that the young prince was indoctrinated in the mystical origins of his ancestors. Even he had trouble digesting the myth. In his teens, he clashed with Professor Shiratori, a history instructor, over the legend of his succession. Declaring that it was biologically impossible, the youthful prince refused to accept the teacher's thesis. Shiratori was thoroughly alarmed and reported Hirohito's blasphemy to court advisors who brought in Prince Sayonji to reason with him. This aged relative was a poor choice. He did not believe the ancestral lore either. Sayonji worked out a compromise. As long as Hirohito kept his suspicions to himself and did not upset the popular image of the imperial family, no harm would be done. The masses could still worship the emperor and find in him a strength of purpose. Hirohito agreed not to rock the ship of state. He spent less time with his history professor, and more in the study of marine biology, at which, in later years, he became a world-renowned expert. As crown prince, he shocked the conservatives at the court by insisting on taking a trip to Europe. Never before had a Japanese heir, apparent, ventured out of the country. Over strenuous objections, he traveled to London, Paris, and Rome, where he was thrilled by his glimpse of Western life and enjoyed the companionship of such men as Edward, Prince of Wales, who also would inherit an empire as King Edward VIII of the United Kingdom. That trip to Europe occurred early in 1921, just shortly before he had to become the regent for his ailing father, Yoshihito. Since Yoshihito was only 42 years old, you might expect that Hirohito would have a really long regency. 
before he became emperor. I mean, maybe like 40 years or something. But remember, Yoshihito had always been in frail health. And just five years later, he got sick with pneumonia and passed at the age of only 47. Thus, on Christmas Day of 1926, at the age of 25, Hirohito became the 124th emperor of Japan. When a new emperor is enthroned, he picks a name for the era in which he reigns, and Hirohito decided to name his era Showa. If you're a Godzilla fan, you'll know that all of the movies made before the 1990s are called the Showa era Godzilla movies. That's because they were made during the Showa era, and now he's referred to as the Showa emperor. The term Showa can be translated different ways, but the one Hirohito had in mind seems to have been the meaning enlightened peace. And in his enthronement address, he said, I have visited the battlefields of the Great War, meaning World War I, in France. In the presence of such devastation, I understand the blessing of peace and the necessity of concord among nations. So Hirohito was hoping that his reign would be an era of enlightened peace, telling you what one of his key priorities was. So obviously that didn't work out, given World War II. No, and the problems began much earlier than that. Uh, Japan was a constitutional monarchy with an increasing emphasis on democratic elections, Although the emperor was the overall leader, he had primarily symbolic value, and the monarch made few actual policy decisions, kind of like in the United Kingdom today. That meant that the real decisions were being made in his name by others, and there were two groups vying for position with each other. One was the civilian government, and the other was the military. The military was increasingly gaining the upper hand. How was the military gaining influence and control in Japan? Since 1900, the Imperial Army and Navy had exercised veto power over the formation of civilian cabinet. So if a cabinet was being put together, they didn't like it, they could veto it. In 1931, the Japanese military staged a false flag operation in the region of Manchuria in northeast China. One of the goals of this event, known as the Mukden Incident, was to create a pretext for invading Manchuria, conquering it, and setting up a puppet state. The other goal was for the military to show that it was more forceful than the civilian government in Tokyo, which had no choice but to go along with the invasion of Manchuria. And they succeeded in both of these goals. That same year, there were not one but two attempts to stage coups by the Surakai, a secret society within the Japanese army. But when these didn't work, the punishments that were given to the Sakurai were mild, and that only encouraged future coups. So the next year, in 1932, a group of young naval officers assassinated the Japanese Prime Minister, Inukai Suyoshi, which resulted in the end of civilian control of the military and left the military making the key governmental decisions until the end of World War II. In 1936, on February 26, in an event known as the February 26 incident, a radical faction in the military staged another coup and succeeded in killing two former prime ministers. On the night of the coup, they also came to the house of the current prime minister, 
Keisuke Okada, and William Craig explains what happened. Because he had drunk too much, Okada slept like a drugged man. When the soldiers came for him in the pre-dawn, he was still drowsy and unable to comprehend the danger. The officers had surrounded the house, broken in, and were flooding into the various rooms. Okada's brother-in-law, Matsuo, and two bodyguards managed to get the premier up from his bed and lead him toward an emergency exit at the back of the house. Seeing men milling about in the rear yard, one of the bodyguards pushed Okada and Matsuo into the bathroom, where they cowered behind a screen. In the corridor outside, several guns were fired simultaneously, and one of the guards died instantly. The other guard grappled with the advancing soldiers, but fell to the floor mortally wounded by sword cuts. As Okada and Matsuo waited for their own deaths, the bathroom door opened. A soldier stepped in and gazed quickly around. Then the trapped men heard the door close and footsteps retreat down the corridor. Matsuo wasted no more time. Warning Okada to be quiet, he calmly walked out of the refuge to his own doom. Matsuo had left Okada for only one reason. He bore a superficial resemblance to his brother-in-law, and he hoped that the soldiers would mistake him for the prime minister and deal with him alone. He would gamble on trading his life for Okada's freedom. Within minutes, the soldiers caught Matsuo as he scampered through the rooms of the house. An officer ordered his men to fire, but at first they did not. When he repeated the instructions, 20 bullets ripped into Matsuo's body. The rebels carried his lifeless form into a bedroom and compared his face with a picture hanging on the wall. One officer said, yes, that's Okada, all right. Within a few minutes, the band of insurrectionists departed, leaving behind three dead men and one live prime minister, who now scurried into a maid's room and squatted down in a closet. For the next 48 hours, while the army rebellion rocked Tokyo, Okada hid in the darkness. He escaped from his refuge by mingling with mourners following Matsuo's corpse as it was taken from the residence. With them, he calmly walked past rebel soldiers still patrolling the streets. He survived to attend his own funeral, which was staged in the belief that Matsuo's body was truly that of the prime minister. So, like in Mark Twain's novel Tom Sawyer, Prime Minister Okada got to attend his own funeral. Ultimately, the radical faction didn't succeed in bringing down the government in 1936, but the military's power was still rising. In December of 1937, the Japanese military invaded Nanking, China, and conducted a six-week series of events known as the Nanking Massacre, or the Rape of Nanking, which involved killing, rape, and looting. William Craig writes, The army invaded China and perpetrated atrocities on the people of Nanking which repelled the rest of the world. Japan joined the Axis in September 1940, and by 1941 the army had occupied French Indochina, that is, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, after France had fallen to Nazi Germany and could no longer protect her interest in Asia. Inexorably, Japan was building toward a confrontation with the West. In October of 1941, General Hideki Tojo of the Imperial Army became prime minister, and this led to the attack on Pearl Harbor two months later, but not in the way you might think. So the attack on Pearl Harbor wasn't just a straightforward militaristic attack? Well, it, it was a militaristic attack, but the motive wasn't because everybody in the Japanese military thought that they could win a normal war with America. Many of the officers were supremely confident of Japan's ability to defeat the United States, but the commander-in-chief of the Imperial Navy, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, was not. 
He believed that given the immense population and natural resources America had at its disposal compared to Japan, there was no way for the empire to win a lengthy war with the United States. Therefore, he proposed a short war. Japan would execute a sneak attack that would disable the American Navy in the Pacific for as much as a year. While the Americans were rebuilding their Navy, Japan would then conquer a bunch of places, and then they would negotiate a peace settlement with the United States. The first two parts of his plan went off as intended. The sneak attack on Pearl Harbor rendered the American Navy basically unable to project force for an extended period of time. And during that time, Japan scored a bunch of victories. But the negotiated peace settlement to cut the war short did not happen. It didn't take a year for America to build up its navy to the point that it was making headway in the Pacific. It only took seven months. And in June of 1942, American forces won the Battle of Midway and turned the tide in the Pacific theater. They did so by striking a major blow against the Imperial Navy. Craig explains, Aided by the fact that Japanese codes had been broken and deciphered by American cryptoanalysts, the United States fleet inflicted an enormous defeat on Yamamoto's task force, which had sailed out intending to annihilate the remnants of Admiral Nimitz's battle line. Yamamoto retreated to his cabin on the battleship Yamato and did not come out until she docked in Japan. After he left his flagship, wounded crewmen were furtively taken to isolation wards of hospitals. Survivors of the stricken warships were warned not to mention anything about the Battle of Midway. Until the end of the war, few military men in Japan knew, as Admiral Yamamoto did, that in June of 1942, the Japanese Navy had been irreparably damaged and the Empire had suffered a fatal wound. After Midway, things went progressively worse for the Japanese military, and by late 1944, another admiral, Takijiro Onishi, came up with a desperate plan. With the American Armada getting ever closer and Japanese forces severely overpowered by American aircraft carriers, desperate tactics were required. In October 1944, Admiral Onishi proposed using airplanes not just to deliver bombs to the aircraft carriers, but to be the bombs. He said, In my opinion, there is only one way of assuring that our meager strength will be effective to a maximum degree. That is to organize suicide attack units composed of zero fighters, armed with 250-kilogram bombs, with each plane to crash-dive into an American carrier. And so, with Japan less than a year away from total surrender, the dramatic suicide missions of the kamikaze pilots were born. But, as devastating as the kamikazes could be, they weren't enough. Yeah, in May of 1945, the Allies celebrated VE Day, or Victory Over Europe Day, with the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany, what implications did that have for the war with Japan? It meant the Allies could now put even more resources into fighting the war with Japan, and so things were about to get even worse for the empire. Americans began shipping more troops to the Pacific theater, Allied forces were getting closer to the Japanese homeland, and airplanes were devastating Japanese city from the sky with firebombs. 
On July 26, 1945, in Potsdam, the capital of the German province of Brandenburg, American President Truman, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Chinese Chairman Chiang Kai-shek issued what's known as the Potsdam Declaration, or Proclamation Defining Terms for Japanese Surrender. Among its provisions, it called for the unconditional surrender of all Japanese armed forces. It also left open the question of how Japan would be governed after the surrender. You know, like, would the emperor be allowed to continue or not? That was an open question. It thus did allow at least the prospect that the emperor himself would be allowed to remain in office. Then came August 6th, 1945. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. These bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. We are now prepared to destroy more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, and their communications. Let there be no mistake. We shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. The city of Hiroshima was destroyed in the world's first act of atomic war. People near the point of detonation were instantly vaporized, some of them leaving permanent shadows on buildings. 75,000 people were killed by the blast and the resulting firestorm, and another 70,000 were injured. Two days later, just before midnight on August 8th, Russia declared war on Japan. And at one minute past midnight on August 9th, they started mobilizing millions of troops to move into Manchuria, which was more troops than Japan had there. Then, later that morning, at 11.01 on August 9th, the Japanese city of Nagasaki was destroyed by another bomb. 40,000 more people were killed and 60,000 injured. The Japanese knew, because of Truman's warning, that more bombs were on the way but they didn't know how soon. The records that were revealed after the war showed the director of the Manhattan Project, American General Leslie Groves, expected to have another bomb ready for use in just 10 days on August 19th. And three to four new atomic bombs would be ready every month after that. Japan needed to act quickly to prevent further destruction, and a set of frantic discussions were underway. What were the different opinions that people there were voicing? Some political and even military officials had never wanted war with the United States in the first place. Some wanted to end it as quickly as possible, even if it meant the humiliating unconditional surrender. Others wanted the war to end, but with a surrender with certain conditions in place. like the emperor gets to stay on the throne. 
still others were willing to end the war with a negotiated settlement rather than a surrender. Some favored continuing the war to make Americans pay with blood in hopes of getting a better settlement. And some wanted to continue the war because the idea of accepting an unconditional surrender was just too humiliating. Late at night, on August 9th, the day of the bombing of Nagasaki, a key group of 12 men were meeting in a small room in an air raid shelter deep beneath the streets of Tokyo for fear of Allied bombing. Six of the men were known as the Big Six, or the Inner Cabinet. More formally, they were known as the Supreme Council for the Direction of the War. They included four cabinet ministers and two military chiefs of staff. Also present were four men who served as aides and secretaries to the Big Six, bringing the total to ten. The eleventh attendee was a visitor who had no official basis for being there, but he was the influential former Prime Minister Baron Kichiro Hiranuma, and the twelfth man was the Emperor himself. The room in the air raid shelter had no ventilation, and in the hot, muggy night of the Japanese August, the men perspired freely as they debated. The emperor had just arrived, and he didn't look good. Craig notes, All of them were dismayed to see that the sovereign's hair was unkempt, hanging down in disarray on his forehead. His harried look was hardly that of a godlike leader. The emperor was not an impressive figure, short-statured, bespectacled, he was shy to an extreme. His right cheek was marred by a nervous tick. His chin receded. His shoulders twitched. His voice was high-pitched. Yet to millions of his subjects he was a divine being beyond worldly criticism, safe from any comparison to a mere mortal. The introverted, ineffectual-appearing Hirohito was nothing less than a direct descendant of the sun goddess Amaterasu. And yet... There was an important reason for him being there. The Big Six were evenly divided, three to three, about whether to accept the Allied terms to end the war. The Emperor couldn't formally decide the issue, but he did have influence. Craig explains, The Emperor of Japan was one who could express his opinions, show his feelings, but who by tradition did not order his own subjects to do his bidding. He had no veto power. On this night, for instance, he could only suggest courses of action to the men in the shelter. But unknown to those who favored continuing the war, one of them had a secret. The moderator of the session and current prime minister, Admiral Kantaro Suzuki, had spoken with the emperor just after Russia declared war, and he learned that the emperor was in favor of accepting the terms of the Potsdam Declaration. So the emperor was on his side. At 2 a.m. on August 10th, the day after Russia's declaration of war and the Nagasaki bombing, and over two hours after the discussion began, deep under the streets of Tokyo, Suzuki did the unprecedented. He stood up in the humid room and said, I believe that everyone has fully expressed his opinion, but I regret that we did not come to an agreement. As it is a matter of great importance, there is no way left but to rely on the decision of his imperial majesty. He addressed the emperor, Your imperial decision is requested as to which proposal should be adopted, the foreign ministers or the one with the four conditions. Suzuki had trumped the opposition, which had never expected the emperor to speak. He had asked the 124th emperor of the Japanese people 
to take the matter out of his subjects' hands and decide the best course for them. The only visible reaction in the room was an immediate stiffening in posture and sharp attention to the man at the head of the long table. Hirohito rose. He began to speak slowly as though feeling for the proper words. I agree with the foreign minister's plan. I have given serious thought to the situation prevailing at home and abroad and have concluded that continuing the war can only mean destruction for the nation and a prolongation of bloodshed and cruelty in the world. And by saying that, the Showa emperor, who had wanted an era of enlightened peace for his reign, cast his vote for peace, even at a terrible price for Japan. But the price would be too terrible for some in the Japanese military, and so the emperor also set in motion a chain of events that would bring about a desperate military coup d'etat. This seems like a great and thrilling moment <laughs> to, take, <laughs> to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including this amazing discussion uh, of, of a piece of history that I know nothing about. So uh, I do want to thank Patrick H., Richard M., Brian D., Jack W., and Dorothy M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, Jacqueline Brown, and Rosary Army. Check out their links in our show notes. So, Jimmy, what happened after Hirohito gave his imperial decision in favor of accepting the humiliating and unconditional surrender and ending the war? A whole series of chaotic events, and we won't be able to cover them all. There is a lot more to this story, but to keep things simple, we'll have to focus only on some of the key developments. For a fuller account, by all means, read William Craig's excellent and compelling book, The Fall of Japan. After the Potsdam Declaration was announced, some members of the military had realized that the government might accept it, and they had begun planning what to do if that happened. The thought of staging a coup was in no way unthinkable. Now remember, there had been two coup attempts made back in 1931. In 1932, coup plotters had assassinated a prime minister. In 1936, a faction staged a coup that killed the two former prime ministers and left the current one hiding in his bedroom after his brother-in-law sacrificed himself for him. And the military was accustomed to having its way no matter what the civilian government thought. So there were officers who were quite prepared to stage a coup, and that's exactly what they did. For this phase of the story, we need to look at a military officer named Kenji Hatanaka, who was 33 years old in 1945. He was a major in the Japanese Imperial Army. He was part of a group of officers that were involved in the coup, and this group included members that were higher ranking than him and lower ranking than him, but Hatanaka was the nexus that played the key role in doing the organization, the getting everybody put together to, and carrying out the coup. It was his job, for example, to recruit members into the conspiracy, and he also carried out the key actions in the plan. So when did the, the plot begin? 
There had already been some preliminary discussions, but the plot really got rolling on August 11th, two days after the bombing of Nagasaki and the day after Hirohito's imperial decision to accept the Potsdam Declaration. The conspirators believed that a group of appeasers among the big six had, and by the way, I just have to say, I love the name, the big six, <laughs> you know, it, it, there's just something awesome about that. It yes. sounds like a superhero team or something. It reminds you six. of the movie, big, big hero, hero six. six. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, anyway, the conspirators believed that there was this group of appeasers among the big six that had surrounded the emperor and convinced him to surrender to the allies. So it's not like he wanted this. It's like, he's been talked into this by these evil appeasers. So the solution was obvious. Seize control of the imperial palace, take the emperor into safe custody so you can free him from the influence of the appeasers, kill all of the appeasers, including Prime Minister Suzuki, reject the terms of the peace deal, and continue the war to avoid the unconditional surrender. But they would need allies to carry out these tasks, and one of Hatanaka's key jobs was to recruit people to help them with the effort. The coup plotters weren't the only ones trying to undo the emperor's decision to surrender, though, and some were trying to get the decision reversed through nonviolent means. So they were trying to, hey, let's reconsider this, but they weren't staging a coup. One of the people taking that angle was General Korichika Anami of the Imperial Army, who was the Japanese war minister. He was a member of the Big Six. And some considered him to be the most powerful man in Japan in practical terms. He also wanted to continue the war. And so on August 12th, he approached one of the emperor's brothers to try to get the decision reversed. It's like, could you talk to your brother, his holiness, the emperor for me and ask him to reconsider? Well, here's what happened when General Anami talked to the brother. He met with Mikasa, the emperor's youngest brother, the so-called Red Prince. Mikasa was a nonconformist whose family never got accustomed to his socialist outlook, his concern for the rights of the masses. To court advisors, Mikasa was a rebel. Anami hoped to convince the prince to intercede with his brother and block the surrender. He miscalculated badly. Mikasa listened politely to the war minister and then turned on him brutally. Since the Manchurian incident in 1931, the army has not once acted in accordance with the imperial wish. It is most improper that you should still want to continue the war when things have come to this stage. Scolded like a child, Anami bowed out of the room. He was crushed beyond comment. Mikasa's words had cut deeply and would stay in his mind. In view of General Anami's pro-war sympathies, and now that his effort to get the decision reversed by nonviolent means had failed, he was a natural person for the coup plotters to recruit to their side. On the evening of August 13th, the plotters approached General Anami. They handed him a piece of paper outlining what they planned to do, and it was scheduled to begin at 10 a.m. the next morning, so he didn't have long to decide. The fateful moment had arrived. On this man's answer hung the fate of millions. Anami asked, Are you sure that you've thought of everything? It seems to me that your groundwork is a little vague. There are too many things still to be accomplished. He concluded, The plan is very incomplete. Still, he did not say definitely whether he was for or against the basic idea of revolt. 
They begged him for an answer, but he deferred making any decision. The next morning, on the 14th, the plan was scheduled to go into operation at 10 a.m., but the pro-peace party threw the coup plotters into disarray when they got an extraordinary mandate from the emperor. Emperor Hirohito sent out a summons for his cabinet ministers to meet with him at 10.30 in less than half an hour. The message caused absolute chaos. All over Tokyo, officials put down telephones and frantically rushed about to dress in proper attire. On this unusual occasion, they were not required to wear formal clothes. Nevertheless, the resulting confusion in offices verged on the hysterical. Private secretaries lost their ties, shirts were exchanged, collars were closed by men trying to look more presentable before their emperor. By car, they converged on the palace for a momentous confrontation. There was no time to put the coup plan into effect, and at the meeting, the emperor reiterated the decision he had made in favor of peace and said that the terms of the Allied offer must be accepted. He also visibly broke down during the meeting, sobbing and showing his emotions, prompting the men present to break down in tears also. Further, to make it clear to the nation that they would be surrendering, the emperor said that he would record a speech announcing the decision to the Japanese people to be broadcast by radio. This would become known as the Jewel Voice Broadcast. Following this meeting, General Anami told the coup plotters that it was all over, that the decision had been made, and there was no going back. But Hatanaka and the others refused to accept this, and now that they had learned about the upcoming Jewel Voice broadcast, they had a new item on their agenda. They needed to stop the broadcast. Hatanaka had gained the support of some individuals, but there was another key ally they needed, Lieutenant General Takeshi Mori of the Imperial Guards Division at the Imperial Palace. If he fell in line, so would the men under him, and they were responsible for the protection of the emperor. So you can see why they want to get the leader of the guards of the emperor on their side. Shortly after midnight on August 15th, Hatanaka and the other conspirators arrived on the grounds of the imperial estate and met with General Mori. It was 12.30 on the morning of the 15th when the small group of officers crowded into Mori's room to confront the, their commanding officer. The fate of their coup might hinge upon his answer. Mori was in a terrible position. Mori began a monologue in his own philosophy of life and avoided a direct answer. He was obviously stalling. So Mori's monologuing went on for over an hour until... Mori had run out of arguments. He looked across at the assembled rebels and suggested one last alternative. I understand your position perfectly. Frankly, I am moved by your arguments. Now I'll go over to the Meiji Shrine and ask God's will. This was his final escape route, chosen to delay the conspirators and fight for time. Since he was known for his very religious beliefs, it would be perfectly normal for him to want to meditate before making any decision. Mori watched the men across from him for a reaction. Beside him, Colonel Shariaishi shifted uncomfortably as he watched Hatanaka and the others weigh the remark. Hatanaka, dripping with sweat from his hurried trip across town, stood before Mori's desk. At his right was another officer, a Mr. X, whose identity cannot be revealed even today because of what happened in the next moments. Hatanaka had wasted several hours of valuable time trying to plead with Mori, 
It was 2 a.m., and his patience had run out. He asked the general for a definite statement. Mori had none. The two rebels acted almost simultaneously. Hatanaka pulled a revolver out of his holster and fired into the body of Mori. His companion ripped his sword out of its scabbard and slashed downward to the general's left collarbone. Mori was dead in seconds. As his body slid off the chair onto the floor, the horror-stricken Shiraishi leaped up to grapple with the murderers. The man with the sword saw him coming and cut viciously at his head. The blade caught Shiraishi on the right side of his neck and continued through to his left ear. The killers looked down at the bloody corpses for a moment and then walked out into the hall. Hearing the gunshot, Ida rushed up to Mori's room where he met Hatanaka coming out, holding the revolver in his right hand. Hatanaka's face was clouded with sorrow. In a trembling voice, he tried to explain, I had no time to argue, so I killed him. I couldn't help it. And so the coup plotters had now become killers. Hatanaka then used General Mori's seal to forge false orders, giving him control of the imperial palace. He then turned his attention to finding and destroying the recording that had been made of the Jewel Voice broadcast, which was on a phonographic disc that had been made just before midnight a few hours earlier. The Emperor's Chamberlain, Yoshihiro Tokugawa, had placed it in a safe in the palace's administration building. By now, the palace grounds were filled with noise and excitement. Because of the air raid alert, all lights had been shut off, and flashlights stabbed through the blackness as soldiers hurried about in unfamiliar surroundings. Inside the Imperial Household Agency, Chamberlain Tokugawa was rudely awakened by an assistant, who whispered, The buildings are surrounded by soldiers. Tokugawa leaped up and ran outside with a flashlight. In the corridor, he came upon a group of servants running downstairs to the safe room, an air raid shelter in the basement. Now that Hatanaka was in control of the palace, this meant the emperor himself was under his control. I have not been able to find out very much about what happened to the emperor while the coup was in operation. This is likely because court sensibilities would not deem it proper to tell the story of how the emperor, a living god, was jostled out of bed and either hustled away or held in custody by a bunch of traitors. In fact, the official story is that the emperor allegedly slept through the whole incident and didn't know anything about it until he woke up at 7 a.m., but I'm suspicious of that account. I find it hard to believe that with the palace under assault, none of the servants would wake up the emperor and try to hustle him to a safe room. I also, I found, I have found a statement from Hatanaka saying that the emperor was in his custody, though it's possible he meant that in a general rather than a specific way. So while I can't prove that the emperor was directly taken into custody by the coup plotters, I am doubtful of the story that he just slept through the whole incident and nobody thought to wake him up. Meanwhile, other coup plotters were acting elsewhere in Tokyo, seeking to kill pro-peace officials, including Prime Minister Suzuki. However, Suzuki had been warned, and he fled his home, so when the conspirators got there and found him gone, they decided to burn down his house instead. They also burned down the home of another one of their targets who had escaped, and Prime Minister Suzuki would continue to be hunted by assassins for months, even though the war had ended. 
Back at the palace, from 4.30 to 5 a.m., the conspirators questioned the Chamberlain about the location of the Jewel Voice record, but he lied and loudly told them that he didn't know where it was, thus signaling every loyal person in earshot that they should say the same thing if they were questioned. Meanwhile, the palace guards were learning that Hatanaka had killed their commanding officer, General Mori, and the chain of command was breaking down. The coup plotters were losing allies outside of the palace as well, and the whole scheme was starting to unravel, with members of the coup starting to defect. Hatanaka had one last card to play. He took several men with him and raced to the broadcasting studios of NHK, the government radio station. There he went to Studio 12 and pointed his gun at Morio Tatino, a radio announcer on duty. Let me speak on the radio at the 5 a.m. news hour. Tatino refused, saying, you have to get the permission of the Eastern Army headquarters. The furious Hatanaka berated Tatino, who could do nothing but repeat the statement. No one could go on the air without sanction from General Seiichi Tanaka. As the two stood there arguing, the telephone rang. Hatanaka picked it up. General Tanaka's office had traced him to the radio station. Hatanaka identified himself and listened quietly as the voice on the other end urged him to give up the rebellion. The disheveled ringleader stood with the receiver in his left hand, the revolver in his right. Finally, he broke in. I want only five minutes. We want to let the nation know what the young officers think. When the voice on the phone refused a request, Hatanaka hung up. He was defeated. There was nothing else he could do to stop the surrender. He wiped tears from his eyes and walked out the door of the studio, muttering to his aides, We did our best. Let's go back to the palace. Soon, General Tanaka himself arrived at the palace to deal with the remnants of the coup. The general walked on through the wooded palace grounds and spoke to knots of soldiers, urging them to break up the gathering and go back to their barracks. He cajoled, threatened, prodded, and ordered. The troops were sullen, tired, and frustrated. But they listened, and the momentum swung to Tanaka's side. As the first streaks of morning appeared in the sky, the rebellion petered out. The coup was dead. It was 8 a.m., but Hatanaka was not yet completely finished. Unable to explain his actions to the Japanese people by radio, he began riding through the streets of Tokyo on a motorcycle, tossing leaflets to the pedestrians to explain his motives and actions. Around 11 a.m., he committed suicide, and in his pocket was a poem which read... I have nothing to regret now that the dark clouds have disappeared from the reign of the emperor. Less than an hour later, the Jewel Voice broadcast would occur. Craig explains. In the morning newscast on August 15th, the Japanese people were told that the emperor himself would speak to them at noon. It was an unprecedented break with tradition. Never before had the emperor talked personally to them. The people had never heard his voice. As the sun rose to the midpoint in schools, factories, private homes, and military bases, everyone gathered around radios or loudspeakers. Very few had an inkling of what they were about to hear. At a minute before noon, Japanese radio listeners heard the familiar sounds of their national anthem, Kimigayo. After the national anthem, 
The Jewel Voice broadcast followed. It was difficult for the people to understand because the message was in the formal, archaic Japanese used at the royal court, but they listened eagerly. To our good and loyal subjects, after pondering deeply the general trends of the world and the actual conditions obtaining in our empire today, we have decided to effect a settlement of the present situation by resorting to an extraordinary measure. We have ordered our government to communicate to the governments of the United States, Great Britain, China, and the Soviet Union that our empire accepts the provisions of their joint declaration. To strive for the common prosperity and happiness of all nations, as well as the security and well-being of our subjects, is the solemn obligation which has been handed down by our imperial ancestors and which lies close to our heart. Indeed, we declared war on America and Britain out of our sincere desire to ensure Japan's self-preservation and the stabilization of East Asia, it being far from our thought either to infringe upon the sovereignty of other nations or to embark upon territorial aggrandizement. But now the war has lasted for nearly four years. Despite the best that has been done by everyone, the war situation has developed not necessarily to Japan's advantage while the general trends of the war have all turned against her interest. Moreover, the enemy has begun to employ a new and most cruel bomb, the power of which to do damage is indeed incalculable, taking the toll of many innocent lives. Should we continue to fight, not only would it result in an ultimate collapse and obliteration of the Japanese nation, but also it would lead to the total extinction of human civilization. Such being the case, how are we to save the millions of our subjects or to atone ourselves before the hallowed spirits of our imperial ancestors? This is the reason we, why we have ordered the acceptance of the provisions of the Joint Declaration of the Powers. The hardships and sufferings to which our nation is to be subjected hereafter will be certainly great. We are keenly aware of the inmost feelings of all of you, our subjects. However, it is according to the dictates of time and fate that we have resolved to pave the way for a grand peace for all the generations to come by enduring the unendurable and suffering what is unsufferable. Beware most strictly of any outbursts of emotion which may engender needless complications or any fraternal contention and strife which may create confusion, lead you astray, and cause you to lose confidence of the world. Let the entire nation continue as one family from generation to generation ever firm in its faith in the imperishability of its sacred land and mindful of its heavy burden of responsibility and of the long road before it. Unite your total strength to be devoted to construction for the future. Cultivate the ways of rectitude, foster nobility of spirit, and work with resolution so that you may enhance the innate glory of the imperial state and keep pace with the progress of the world. <laughs> And so, the surrender announcement had been made. And what was the reaction of the Japanese people? William Craig explains, In their grief and shock and fear, most civilians in Japan simply retreated into their homes to await the enemy. The military, however, were far from passive. In the hours after the emperor's speech, truckloads of drunken soldiers careened through the downtown section of Osaka, shouting that the war would go on. Bottles of liquor crashed onto the streets as they vented their frustrations at the world. Pedestrians merely watched them. Many military men committed suicide, and others were worried about reprisals, 
Admiral Suzuki, the prime minister who had overseen the surrender, was in particular danger, and he immediately resigned from office along with his cabinet. The old man had done the job he had been assigned to do. From April to August, he had ridden the mounting wave of tension that had gripped Japan and had managed to maintain his balance despite several slips that had nearly ruined the precariously built foundations of peace. The venerable admiral had performed the most onerous task ever given to a Japanese and thereby rescued his countrymen from complete annihilation. For this, he had nearly died at the hands of fanatics. For this, he would remain a hunted man for months, unable to sleep in his own bed, hounded from sanctuary to sanctuary, until finally, some time after the United States Army occupied his nation, the hunters tired of the chase. There also was the matter of arranging the formal surrender to General MacArthur, which posed several challenges. Some of the Japanese officials simply refused to be part of the delegation because it was too humiliating. But others were found who were willing to enact the surrender, however distasteful it was to them. But even once the officials had been found, there was concern for their safety. There were rumors that a group of disaffected officers would attempt to destroy the planes that would take them to Manila in the Philippines, where they were scheduled to prepare the surrender documents. In fact, on August 16th, the Japanese authorities sent an urgent message to MacArthur requesting a 48-hour delay because of what they called internal problems, and the meeting was rescheduled for August 19th. MacArthur didn't know what those internal problems were, though he no doubt suspected, and today we know the full story. There was yet another plot to sabotage the surrender being run by a group at the Atsugi Air Base. The leader of the defiant group at Atsugi Air Base was a Navy captain, Amyo Kosono a man totally committed to further prosecution of the war. On the 15th, after listening to Hirohito's recorded broadcast, Kosono mounted a wooden platform near the Atsugi runway and addressed the rows of pilots standing stiffly at attention. I realized that, by the government's acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, the Japanese army forces are demobilized. However, since that moment, there has begun a national war, which means defense of our country by the individual. If you want to fight with me, stay here. If you don't, you can go back to your homes. I'll fight on with absolute certainty of victory. Kosono marched off the platform, leaving behind hundreds of airmen struggling to make a last painful decision. When he walked through camp a few hours later, he noticed the renewed spirit of the men and felt that they would stand by him. Within the next 24 hours, leaflets hurriedly printed by the Atsugi warriors began to fall on Tokyo. They clearly stated Kosono's case. Government officials and senior statesmen who were caught in an enemy trap have enticed the emperor to issue the message ending the war. It was a terrible thing to do. The emperor is a god. There is no such thing as surrender in Japan. There is no surrender in the imperial forces. We as members of the air force are sure of victory. The government immediately responded to this new threat, but they were unable to convince Captain Kosono to back down from his plan. They even had one of the emperor's brothers, who was a friend of Kosono, talk to him, but to no avail. And then, fate seems to have intervened. At midnight that evening, Kosono was still laboring at his desk over the final aspects of his grandiose scheme. Suddenly, his fingers began to tremble violently. The spasms increased out of control. He jumped up and screamed at the top of his voice. His secretary was struck dumb by the spectacle. 
as Kosono retreated to a corner, the terrified secretary bolted out to summon a doctor. On their return, the two men found the sweating captain squatting on a cushion, mumbling the names of ancient gods. It took the efforts of both men and an injection of morphine to quiet him. Though Kosono had a period of rationality the following day, it was short-lived. Men sent by Admiral Yonai to talk with him that afternoon found him trussed in a straitjacket. From Atsugi Air Base, he was removed to the Nobi Navy Hospital. For Amio Kosono, the war was over at last. So Captain Kosono's plan came to an end when he apparently had a nervous breakdown. But like in a horror movie, the killer keeps coming back no matter how many times <laughs> you put him down. And there was still danger because the Japanese needed to get their officials in contact with MacArthur's forces to prepare the documents to be signed at the surrender ceremony. And that meant they needed a preliminary face-to-face meeting. Though Kosono himself was no longer a problem, there were other fanatics at Tsugi still capable of launching an attack. There were also other air bases in Japan with kamikazes less flamboyant, perhaps, than Kosono, but as disinclined to accept surrender as he. An elaborate secret plan had therefore been concocted for the flight. This plan involved changing planes, going out of their way to avoid kamikaze fighters, with decoy planes going in another direction, and going part of the way with an escort of American fighters to protect them. But they made it without incident. At one point, the Americans had them transferred to a C-54 American transport plane, which caused them some alarm. They boarded the transport and sat down in far more comfortable circumstances than they had expected. They began to relax as they realized that the Americans meant them no harm. Some had thought they might be killed. Now all but Kawabe began to chat and laugh. Sour and gloomy, he sat looking out a window while the rest pulled their boots off and settled down. Lunch was served as the plane headed out over the water. A stewardess who moved among the Japanese caught their attention because of her blonde hair, which they found fascinating. The meal she and the stewards gave them consisted of bully beef sandwiches, cheese, hard-boiled eggs, peanut butter, bread, cake, pickles, and pineapple juice. Even the moody Kawabe ate. And they made it to Manila, where they prepared the surrender documents, but on the way back to Japan, their plane sprung a fuel leak and needed to make an emergency landing. The Japanese officials were terrified of what could happen if the surrender documents didn't make it back to Tokyo. After consultation, the only possible expedient was suggested. Okazaki, are you still a good swimmer? Kotsuo Okazaki, the foreign office delegate, had been a champion swimmer, competing in 1924 in the Olympics in Paris. Now in his 40s, he was being asked to guard the papers with his skill and his life. Recovering from his surprise at the question, he took them and tucked them inside his shirt. As the plane bored in toward the coast, the pilot saw the outlines of a beach. He brought the plane down low over the water till it was just skimming the waves. When it touched the crests, the passengers were tossed wildly about. The pilot gunned the engines and lifted the bomber slightly. It went a short distance, then settled in the water just a few yards from a smooth beach. The top turret was flung open, and the delegation tumbled out into knee-deep water. Only one man was hurt. It was Okazaki, the swimmer. Yeah. <laughs> but the surrender documents made it back to Tokyo, Within a few days, American forces arrived and began the post-war occupation of Japan. And on September 2nd, which was still September 1st back in America, 
Japanese officials went aboard the USS Missouri to meet General MacArthur, and soon President Truman addressed the American people by radio. My fellow Americans, the thoughts and hopes of all America are centered tonight on the battleship Missouri. There, on that small piece of American soil, anchored in Tokyo Harbor, the Japanese have just officially laid down their arms. They have signed terms of unconditional surrender. Four years ago, the thoughts and fears of the whole civilized world were centered on another piece of American soil, Pearl Harbor. As President of the United States, I proclaim Sunday, September the 2nd, 1945, to be VJ Day, the day of the formal surrender of Japan. From this day, we move forward. We move toward a new era of security at home. With the other United Nations, we move toward a new and better world of cooperation, of peace, and international goodwill. God's help has brought us to this day of victory. With his help, we will attain that peace and prosperity for ourselves and all the world in the years ahead. And in the years ahead, despite the difficulties and differences of opinion that are always part of the human condition, America and Japan became friends and allies, and thank God for that. Amen. So what can we say about the Japanese coup from the faith perspective? Well, first thing is, thank God it didn't succeed. Who knows how many more lives on both sides would have been lost and how much longer the wounds of the war would have taken to heal if it had succeeded. Stepping back from that and looking at coups in terms of matters of principle, the faith actually does have something to say about them. There have always been rulers who were tyrants that oppressed their people, and their subjects have had to find ways to deal with them. In history, to depose a tyrant from power and keep him from trying to regain the throne and only causing more loss of life, you usually had to kill the tyrant, meaning that you had to commit tyrannicide. Catholic theologians have thus discussed the conditions under which you could stage a coup and kill a tyrant. There have been a variety of viewpoints taken, and we'll have a link to the 1912 Catholic Encyclopedia that discusses the different ideas that Catholic thinkers have advocated concerning tyrannicide. Today, however, the Church's position is expressed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which doesn't expressly deal with the question of killing a tyrant, but which does discuss the general category that coups fall under, which is using military arms to resist political authority. According to paragraph 2243 of the Catechism, Armed resistance to oppression by political authority is not legitimate unless all the following conditions are met. One, there is certain grave and prolonged violation of fundamental rights. Two, all other means of redress have been exhausted. Three, such resistance will not provoke worse disorders. Four, there is well-founded hope of success. And five, it is impossible reasonably to foresee any better solutions. The first thing to notice about this is that the Catechism is discussing armed resistance to oppression by political authority. For that condition to have been fulfilled in the case of the Japanese coup plotters, the government of Emperor Hirohito would have had to be oppressing the Japanese people by surrendering to the Allies. I can imagine how members of the Japanese military may have felt oppressed by the decisions that were being made by the emperor and his government. 
given the extreme humiliation they felt at the unconditional surrender and the strength of Japanese honor culture. However, one would have to look at the situation from more than just the perspective of the passions of the moment. The fact was that the Allies were going to win this war, and continuing it further would not have diminished the humiliation of its end. The Allies had already committed to the unconditional surrender requirements by the Potsdam Declaration. Had the Japanese military continued the war, it only would have strengthened the Allied resolve to crush the opposition, and the damage done to the Japanese nation would have been even greater before an eventual unconditional surrender would have resulted. While there might have been some room for negotiators to play around the edges with what was meant by unconditional, once the Allies had committed to the Potsdam Declaration, there was no way the war would have ended without Japan agreeing to something that the Allies could have called unconditional surrender. Thus, the humiliation of the end of the war would have remained materially the same, and a successful coup would only have continued what would have then become a needless loss of life for both the Japanese and the Allies. Consequently, the conditions for a morally legitimate coup were not present. Emperor Hirohito's pro-peace policy was not an oppression. It did not involve the certain grave and prolonged violation of fundamental rights of the Japanese people. Resistance to his policy would have provoked worse disorders. There was no well-founded hope of success, and there was a better solution than supporting a coup, namely supporting the emperor's pro-peace plan. The conditions needed for a morally legitimate coup thus did not obtain on the Catholic understanding of the matter. Does that mean we can pass judgment on the individual coup plotters for violating Catholic teaching? No, we can't. We can say that a person's actions were objectively wrong, but that doesn't mean we can address the state of his soul. That's something between him and God, and we don't know what was happening in their hearts. Further, either all or virtually all of the coup plotters were not Catholics, and certainly not Catholics with access to a catechism that wouldn't be released until 1992. Though there were a few Christians in, in Japan, the coup plotters would have been overwhelmingly Shintoists or maybe Buddhists. While you could work out the conditions needed for staging a coup by natural moral reasoning, the Catechism also makes this point in paragraph 1960. The precepts of natural law are not perceived by everyone clearly and immediately. In the present situation, sinful man needs grace and revelation, so moral and religious truths may be known by everyone with facility, with firm certainty, and with no admixture of error. Thus, under the beliefs that were common in Japanese culture at the time, the coup plotters could easily have had an admixture of error in their perception of what the moral law required regarding staging a coup, and so we can't judge their hearts. What about the fact that many of the plotters, as, as well as other members of the military, committed suicide? The same thing applies. Because of the way error can distort human judgments in our present fallen state, we can't judge the hearts of those who committed suicide. Suicide is a grave sin, but as the Catechism says in paragraphs 2282 and 2283, Grave psychological disturbances, anguish, or grave fear of hardship, suffering, or torture can diminish the responsibility of the one committing suicide. We should not despair of the eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives. By ways known to him alone, God can provide the opportunity for salutary repentance. 
The church prays for persons who have taken their own lives. In 1945, there was an ethic in Japanese society that promoted suicide before grave dishonor, and the surrender at the end of World War II involved grave dishonor. We thus can't judge the hearts of individual people who committed suicide. However, we can, and with the church should, pray for those who took their own lives and ask God to bring them into his kingdom of joy. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line for this mystery, this historical mystery of the desperate coup in Japan? Given the circumstances of the time, it was very likely that some in the Japanese military would resist the order to surrender and would try to stage a coup. And in fact, as we've seen, there were multiple attempts to sabotage the coming peace, only some of which we've covered. We can thank God that they didn't succeed and that the bloodshed was not continued any further. We can also thank him that in the ensuing years, Japan and America have become friends and allies, and we can pray for the souls of the coup plotters as well as for all who died in the conflict, no matter what nation they belong to. Very good. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener? Well, we'll have a link to William Craig's book, The Fall of Japan, The Final Weeks of World War II in the Pacific, which is an excellent read and goes into a lot more plot twists than we were able to here. We'll have links to pages on Emperor Hirohito, Yoshihito, the Potsdam Declaration, the Surrender of Japan, the 1945 coup that we've talked about today, the 1936 coup, the 1931 coup. The Jewel Voice broadcast, that Catholic Encyclopedia article on tyrannicide, and also the Catechism on using armed resistance to deal with government oppression. Excellent. So at this point, we would usually do our mysterious feedback, uh, but our episodes this week and next week are longer than usual, and we've gotten some really good feedback that we don't want to shortchange because of time limitations. We're already well over an hour at this point. So we're going to delay mysterious feedback by a couple weeks, but we will be getting to your feedback on all our recent episodes soon. So don't worry and keep sending in your feedback. Yeah. And like, for example, today would have been remote viewing feedback and got some really good remote viewing feedback. Did not want to shortchange that. You know, like uh, when, when we do it, I'm going to get to talk about like some of the more further on some of the moral questions about like, how is it legitimate to experiment with this or not? And actually, there are several different Catholic moral schools of thought that apply to that. Did not want to shortchange that discussion. All right. So be sure to stay subscribed to get those mysterious feedback uh, discussions when they when they show up in a few weeks. So uh, that brings us to mysterious headlines. Jimmy, what do we have for headlines? We have an update on the Golden State Killer, who we originally talked about way back in episode 38. The Golden State Killer was a criminal here in California back in the 1970s and 1980s that committed progressively more violent crimes leading up to murder. And he was caught. It turned out his, he's a former police officer named Joseph D'Angelo. And he was caught using a, a public genetic database. His DNA was not in it, but a relative of his put their DNA in this public database, and the authorities identified this person as someone from the family of the Golden State Killer. They could then do family contact tracing and figure out who he was. Then they got his DNA, 
and it showed it was him. So since that time, he's been in custody and awaiting trial. And recently, we let you know that he was his lawyers were floating the idea of a plea deal in exchange for a life sentence. So instead of being subject potentially to the death penalty, he would plead guilty of his crimes in exchange for getting a life sentence without the possibility of parole. And it won't be a long life sentence because he's already 74 years old or something. Well, that finally happened. And so the we'll have a link to an article about the Golden State Killer admitting his crimes in court. And it's it, it's a f- interesting article. It reveals some new details that had not yet been made public before about what's been happening behind the scenes Apparently, he he tried to claim in his interviews, he finally admitted behind the scenes that he did this stuff, even though he initially denied it. And he started to blame it on an alternate personality that he called Jerry and was saying that he tried. He didn't want to do these things, but he couldn't resist Jerry and couldn't push him out. And Jerry made him do this stuff. This is viewed, as is a lot of the stuff that Joseph D'Angelo has been doing, is viewed as probably fake, that normally serial killers, especially ones as calculating as D'Angelo was, do not have split personalities. They are consciously in control of what they're doing. And so that's viewed as an attempt to like shift blame and feign mental illness. He also is widely regarded as feigning being weaker physically than he actually is. And it's viewed by many as just part of his ongoing attempts to manipulate people and events around him. In any event, check out the article we'll have a link to. Also, if you really want to go deep on this, we'll have a link to an hour and a half long video of the hearing where he pleads guilty, where they just go through charge after charge after charge, and he admits them all. Here is a clip from the end of that, and you can already already hear they're up to like charge number 75 in this clip. And this is the very end of the hearing. So let's take a listen to it. Jane Doe number 50 was able to untie her bindings and untie her boyfriend's bindings and call for help. D'Angelo took John Doe's office and house keys along with money. Thank you, counsel. You wish you bear it as to incidents 73 and 74. No, yeah. Regarding the uncharged offense of kidnapping to commit robbery of Jane Doe number 50, having occurred April 4th, 1970. Nine in the county of Alameda, a violation of Penal Code Section 209. Do you admit or deny that? Uh, I admit. Regarding the uncharged offense of rape of Jane Doe, number 50, having occurred on April 4, 1979, in the county of Alameda, a violation of Penal Code Section 261. Do you admit or deny that? I admit. Regarding the uncharged offense of false imprisonment, of Jane Doe number 50 and John Doe number 22 having occurred April 4th, 1979, the County of Alameda, a violation of Penal Code Section 236. Do you admit or deny? I admit. Court finds the admissions were voluntary uh, and with the understanding of the nature of the uncharged crimes as well as the consequences of the admissions, the people accept the admissions as stated on the record? Yes, Your Honor. Court accepts the admissions as stated on the record. Is there anything else in terms of Alameda charges? No, Your Honor. All right. Thank you, counsel. The court does find all the pleas and the, all the admissions were voluntary, knowing and intelligently made. And the court does accept all the pleas and admissions. This matter is 
set for judgment and sentencing starting the week, I believe, of August 17th of 2020. And as you can hear in that, uh, he's scheduled his sentencing hearing is scheduled to begin on August 17th. So that's just later this week at the time this episode drops. So uh, watch the news and find out what happens. If everything goes as planned, it should be multiple instances of life without parole. All right. So uh, that's it from us. Uh, We want to hear from you for a future feedback segment. So what are your theories about our topic today, the desperate coup in Japan at the end of World War II? You can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page by sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Our next episode is going to be about what happened back in August of 1992 at a place called Ruby Ridge. It is another very dramatic story. And as happened with the Branch Davidians, this one is going to leave the FBI with a big black eye. All right. So remember, folks, to like this episode and all our episodes of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on our Facebook page, retweet it on Twitter, and engage with us on social media. We love having conversations with you there and seeing the conversations that ensue between listeners. Uh, You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce this podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>